everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I want to begin by asking you two questions about how you lead and manage. First, do you think people who work for you would describe you as being someone who recognizes their unique talents, draws them out, and utilizes them to the fullest? And second, would your people say that they've grown more around you than any other manager they've ever worked for? I'm asking you these questions because it turns out that leaders who actively invest in their employees like this by teaching, coaching, and intentionally maximizing their human potential, they're phenomenally rewarded. In response to receiving this kind of personal care, trust, support, and development, people reciprocate by giving their leaders more. And for reasons we're about to explore, data shows that managers who purposely optimize their talent get two times more out of their people. Now that's an incredible return on investment, of course, and so it's a thrill for me to introduce you to our guest today, whose research proves in yet another compelling way that we do indeed reap what we sow in leadership. Liz Wiseman spent 17 years as a senior leader at tech firm Oracle, where she was responsible for the software giant's global talent strategy and directed its corporate university. And since leaving that part of her career, she's gone on to write three very successful books, including the highly acclaimed New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And this is the book I'm excited to dive into in today's podcast. Liz is now a leadership consultant in Silicon Valley, where her list of prestigious clients includes Apple, AT&T, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike, Salesforce, Tesla, and Twitter. And Liz has been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. She holds a bachelor's degree in business management and a master's of organizational behavior from Brigham Young University. Liz Wiseman, welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Mark, it's so good to be talking about this. What's on your mind? Well, I have lots of wonderful questions for you. Uh, I spent a lot of time digesting your book and tried to pick out what I think is going to be the most interesting to our podcast audience. So to get things started, I'd like it if you'd give us a deeper overview of what it means to be a multiplier leader. Mm. Well, you know, a multiplier leader is someone who is using their own intelligence and capability and talent in a way that amplifies the intelligence and capability of others. They're leaders that we are at our best around. They're leaders that we're at our smartest around. And we find is that people actually are smart and get smarter around these leaders. And this idea of leader as multiplier, it came out of an observation I had from my time in the corporate world where I could see, you know, I, I was thrown into senior management at Oracle at a pretty young age. So I was very observant. I was constantly watching what the people around me were doing. And I noticed that despite the fact that all the senior leaders were really, really smart, not all of them caused smarts, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, if you've ever seen a really smart person walk into a room and and just drain the intelligence out of a room, like just they literally suck the intelligence out of their colleagues. You know, I noticed this and I came to call these leaders diminishers. They used intelligence mm -hmm. kind of as a, a weapon mm -hmm. against others. And, and then I noticed a different kind of leader, you know, equally smart, but they used their intelligence in very different ways. Like they used their intelligence more as a, a tool 
a, a tool for innovating, for ideating, a tool for growth and problem solving. And, you know, and so I studied these and found that these different kind of leaders, they think in very, very different ways. They have fundamentally different assumptions. You know, the diminishers think that nobody's going to figure it out without without me. And they become sort of the central intelligence on their team. And these multiplier leaders, they believe that the people around them, you know, fundamentally are, are smart and capable and can figure it out. And they do things very different. You know, there's five things they do fundamentally different. And I think more important than what they do, I found that they got very different levels of capability from people. People reported around these diminishers that these leaders got less than half of their intelligence. 48% is what came out of the research. You have to think of it like these companies are spending a dollar, but getting 48 cents Mm -hmm. of value from that dollar around these diminishing leaders who may be very smart themselves, but they're costing the capability and intelligence of others. And, and, you know, these multipliers leaders, we found that they get virtually all of people's capability and people say, man, I just got smarter and more capable around this person. So that I think is the idea kind of in a nutshell. Well, tell me as I listen to this and I think about what I read, what's the motivator? What's the hidden drive of someone to be, you know, some, I mean, you're obviously, you're a student of leadership, if you will. You're promoted early in your career. You're probably feeling, I've got to get some mastery here. I'm going to pay attention to what's effective. And you see two people. I was desperate. Another way to say that is I was really desperate. (laughs) Well, I think you're also very smart, right? I mean, obviously you got promoted because people saw the potential in you, but you probably had the doubt of, hey, they've promoted me a little bit beyond where I think I am, so I'm going to have to get there. And that's a pretty clever way of elevating yourself in your career. And you made an astute observation. There's two kinds of managers out there. There's people that elevate others, these multipliers. And then there's, we've all had them and many of them, diminishers. So how are these people bred, if you will? What's the, where do they break off from birth and become someone who says, I believe in the talent and genius of other people and I wanna maximize that. And I believe in myself and I wanna maximize that. These two people, how did they Mm. get there? Like, did the diminishers get dropped on their head? Wondering, right. Is that what you're asking about? Like, and you know, I often wonder about this. In fact, when I'm encountering diminishers or leaders I find very ineffective or just generally people who like annoy me, is I often <laughs> find myself asking the question, who did this to them? Right. Like what it happened, and I'm not talking about like the deep psychology of childhood experiences necessarily, but I often wonder when I see these really diminishing leaders, I wonder what their first boss was like. You know, I wonder who cemented this assumption that other people couldn't be trusted. Like who said to them, you know what, if you want something done, do it yourself. Hey, you can't trust your people, they'll fail you. You've got to inspect everything. Like, I wonder what happened. And, and, you know, from my perspective, what kind of went wrong along the way, you know, it was interesting. I had, um, I had this experience that I will not forget. I haven't told a lot of people about this, so why not tell you and why not? Exactly. I'll keep it my secret, by the way. Everyone who's listening to this podcast, (laughs) you know, I was in a coaching role and I was working with an executive that I really, really liked and really likes still like, and I was asking him why it was so important for him to be right. 
And and yeah, I thought that was sort of a simple question. I was just trying to understand like what it would, well, you could probably see where I was going with that. Mm -hmm. And he lifted up his hair and he kind of pulled back his hairline and he showed me of some scars that were right on his hairline. And he said, that's what happened to me when I came home from school with anything less than a perfect grade. Well, then what you're really saying is it's not who their first manager is, but it really does come down to how you're shaped and influenced growing up, doesn't it? Well, and I think there are a number of, you know, obviously for me, this was a very impactful conversation I had because I realized that there are a number of people who have been praised for their intelligence, punished for not having the right answers, for not knowing, for not, you know, getting it it right. And often these people achieve and are very smart because they're highly driven, motivated in a real negative sense to that. You know, when they're put in a management position, it's really hard for them to not be the know-it-all. However, I think this is really the minority. I think most people kind of fall into management. They sort of flop their way there. They find themselves there, often overwhelmed. Just last night, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's in a residency program as a physician, and he just has been put in his first management role. He's just started his third year as a resident. He's in a surgical residency. The job is just incredibly difficult, very little sleep, and now he's in charge of all of the first-year residents in the surgery program trying to direct their work. And, you know, I want everyone to go back to, like, that first experience where you're suddenly going from doing to to managing, and, and it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And you're not only responsible for your own mistakes, you're responsible for everyone else's screw-ups. And think about, you know, if you're overseeing a surgery in an ICU department, and it's so easy to just be overwhelmed by this and to turn to the source you know best, your own ideas, your own capability to default there, or to just get so busy that you stop seeing that the people around you have perhaps more capability than than you see with your naked eye, that maybe there's more there if you just went and looked for it. So I find that most of the diminishing is not coming from the tyrannical, narcissistic bully. It's not coming from the wounded manager, you know, the one who has to be right. Most of it's coming from overwhelmed managers or from unaware managers. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I started this, so this is like confessions of a social science researcher here, is when I started the research, I really could see that there were these people were either multipliers or diminishers. But as I've really studied this further, I have so clearly come to see, and there's so much data that supports this, that most of the diminishing that's happening in our workplaces, in our communities, and even like in our churches and, and in our homes, most of it's coming from what I call the accidental diminisher, you know, the well-meaning leader, like the good person, the person who who kind of loves upper people, who really cares about others, the manager who wants to see his staff be successful. But despite having a big heart or a generous spirit, that they actually can have a diminishing effect as some of the narcissistic bully types. And that's where it gets really interesting to me, like how we end up shutting down others despite having, in some ways, the noblest of intentions. Hmm. Where do people trip in that scenario? You know, uh, well, let's talk about the big-hearted leader. 
you know, this is one of the ways that we see diminishing happening most frequently is the rescuer. You know, the big hearted leader doesn't like to see people. I'm not saying all big hearted leaders, but like when you're just leading from. They're all heart. They're all heart. It's all heart. Yep. It's a limitation, huge limitation. And they want to see their people be successful. And so when people are struggling or suffering, like rather than hold back and say, you know what? To be a good leader, I've got to tolerate just a little bit of suffering, like other people's suffering. I have to stand back and watch someone flail and suffer and hold the line, you know, because it's very easy to jump in and rescue. And of course, we know when we're rescuing with these like noble, heroic, you know, attempts to save the day, because, you know, like you can hear the soundtrack in the background, you know, da, 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 da. but more often than not, it's extending a hand of help. But, you know, we know, Mark, what happens when a leader is helpful too early or too often. You know, sometimes we're at our most helpful when we don't help. We can be overly protective of our people to the point where they don't even need a rescue. And, and you know, I've heard so many leaders say this. I've said it. Well, oh, you know what? I'll take this meeting because this one's going to be contentious. Let me handle this one. Or, hey, you know what? You don't want to present to her. She's going to knock your knees out. Like, it's going to be brutal. I'll do the presenting. And we shelter the people who work from us from danger. We often keep them back from challenge or or probably the most cited thing is, you know what, hey, I got to protect them from the politics of the organization. Like I'm going to create a safe haven here, you know, and then we find with these leaders, a huge gap develops between their capability and that of their team. So what you're saying then is that the people that they're managing, so I'm the manager with this, you know, completely driven heart only, no balance. And so I see somebody and I think they're going to struggle here. This meeting's not going to go well, or this person's difficult. So I'm going to take that on. And my motivation is to save them. But in fact, there's no growth for those people. There's no opportunity to learn and that people end up feeling diminished by that. Yeah, absolutely. Because when we rescue someone, even when they kind of ask for it, but when we rescue someone, we've telegraphed like a silent message that says, you can't figure it out without me. Right. Which is the fundamental assumption that these diminishers hold. And so there's the diminishers like, haha, you'll never be able to figure it out without me and my incredible genius. I think that's where you really want to put the frame is around that idea that I'm smarter, I'm more experienced, you can't survive or thrive or succeed unless I'm somehow involved. That's the limitation of a diminisher, isn't it? Well, it really is. You know, I just, um, just yesterday, my husband and I, we got this text from our son. Now, our son is, uh, he's 19, he's on a gap year, and he is having the most epic gap year. Jealous. Like no 19 year old kid should have a gap year like this. But on the other hand, I think every 19 year old kid should have a gap year like this. So he's been um, mountaineering all around the, the world mm. and much of it solo and a lot of it at altitude, very high altitudes. And he's in the high Sierras right now. And he's going through and, you know, sort of bushwhacking through the high Sierras of California all by himself. And so we said, you know, on this trip, we'd like to hear from you every day on your satellite tracker. And And his response back was, he said, can you just trust your son a little bit? And, you know, it was this reminder for me that when we intervene too much, we do send this message of, I don't trust you. And trust, it's at the very source of all great performance. You know, it's funny, um, my mom 
this was a years, a couple years after the multipliers book was out, I overheard a conversation at some family gathering and I heard my mom say, you know, if I could sum up Elizabeth's book into one, she calls me Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> if I could sum up Elizabeth, AKA Liz's book in one word, she said, I would use the word trust. I thought, oh, that's interesting because it is this mindset of trust. I trust that the people around me are smart and are capable and are thinking and will figure it out. Maybe not at first pass, but that we have the capacity to learn. You know, I will say to you that having read the book very recently, that your mom gets a gold star because I really do think that trust is at the core of the message. And where it really plays out for me is I, anytime you read a leadership book, you start reflecting on people you've used to work with. And I can still feel the pain of working for one person particularly who was just a huge diminisher. I mean, massively. And at a very senior level, that's sort of hard to take when you're really working really, really hard and you're working for somebody that you know is just simply not advocating for you. Oh, it sucks the life out of people. It kills your spirit. And it, this has been years ago, and I can still like surface those feelings, you know, so it, it doesn't go away. But in terms of what your mom's observation was to me, the other side of this is early in my career, kind of like you, I, I got opportunities to just grow quickly. And I got promoted to a role that when it happened, I was young and I had huge influence in this organization. And I really did have this, oh man, am I up for this kind of a thing? Mm. And so, but they wanted me to move the organization in a different direction, which makes you even more vulnerable if you don't feel like you really have it all nailed down. And now you want to be driving change. And I did a few things that didn't work. I did plenty of things that did work, but I did some things where I thought, oh man, I'm just going to get hammered for this. And I never did. And that's the trust component. They saw in me the capability of he's going to be harder on himself than we could ever be. He's going to figure this out. He's going to learn from this and he's going to do better. And I never forgot that to give people space. That's this multiplier piece that I just thought resonated so strongly with me when I read your book. Well, and I hope everyone has had an experience with one of these kind of leaders who definitely sees capability in you. They see it deeply. They trust you. And they have this ability to look at you and your work as separate units. They can say, you know what, that is poor work. That is not good enough. But they can look at you and say, but you are good enough and you are capable of brilliant work. But this one, you know, you didn't hit it this time. And they can tell you that. You know, it's one of the surprises in the research is that these multiplier leaders had such a hard edge that they weren't just feel good leaders. They're absolutely people oriented leaders and they care about their people, but they're challenging. They're demanding. Um, when I sent the first version of the manuscript into my publisher at HarperCollins, she she wrote back and among a bunch of things that she, she wrote, she just said, wow, these aren't cupcakes and kisses kinds of leaders. And, you know, I think all of my multipliers have been people who who didn't just put their arm around me and love me up, like, and maybe didn't even do that, but they saw this capability in me. They gave me a big job and then they trusted me to do it. And you know, they may never have declared <laughs> their like love and appreciation for me in a way that some people would think. But man, did I love working for these bosses. 
Like I would have done just about anything for him. Exactly. You'll scale mountains for these kind of people. But it's really interesting because even somebody who's, you know, editing a book is saying, whoa, you know, no, they're not cupcakes after all. You know, it's like a surprise that you could be someone who's an advocate and helping people become more and really accomplish and grow while also expecting the world from them in terms of performance, you know. And so this leads me into a big question that I want to ask you. And you had an incredible honor of having Stephen Covey write your preface before he passed away. Mm, yeah. And he said that all the times, and I actually hired him to come speak at one point years ago, and he said that when he gave a speech every time, he made a point of asking the audience, he said, raise your hands if you agree that the vast majority of your organization's workforce possesses far more capability, creativity, talent, initiative, and resourcefulness than their present job allowed them to use. And then he said, 99% of the hands went up every time. And I'm like, really? I mean, that's just astonishing to me that everyone feels that their own talents aren't being identified and recognized and maximized and developed and all of those things. And so tell me why leaders and organizations have historically chosen to not fully utilize people's talents and genius. Mm. You know, I don't think many choose not to do it. I think most don't even see it. Like they, they don't know. And, you know, I ask a question often as I'm asking people to reflect on their leaders. And if I could ask everyone here listening to reflect on, you know, someone who is a diminisher to you and to others, not only what did they do, but I like to ask, what did they believe to be true? Like, what were the assumptions? And we've talked about a few of those, but here's something I hear people say often. They say uh, they assumed that what they were getting from me was all that I had. Like they're just seeing on the surface. It's like, I think we can all remember like the very first time we saw one of those films that shows someone going into a hotel room with a black light and they're exposing like all the germs mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. the gross stuff. Mm -hmm. And you're like, ooh, I didn't know that was there. And it's kind of like this, that most managers don't know it's there. Yeah. They don't realize that people have these deep reserves of capability. And what I find is that when people begin to see it, when they're asked the question, are you getting all of the capability of people around you? I like to ask people, if I went to your team one by one and asked them what percentage of your intelligence, your knowledge, your skills, your talent, what would the people who work for you say? And people are like, ooh, and they kind of start to take inventory and they're like, wow, yeah, I bet some people would say it's not 100%. Like, go find out the answer to that question. Like, am I getting your full capability? And if not, what could I do to get more? And here I think is one of the really important ideas behind multipliers is it's not about leaders getting more from others. It's about creating an environment where people give more. And, you know, it's funny, you said I'm a student of leadership. I absolutely am a student of leadership. And I don't really consider myself an expert, except on maybe one thing. Here's the thing I know for certain. In studying leadership and teaching it and studying it all around the world, what I have learned is about followership. It's about contributorship. Is I've learned that people come to work every day desperately wanting to give 100% of their capability. And this crosses industries, white collar, blue collar, it crosses cultures. 
it's human. It's painful. It's it's a human need to contribute and to contribute fully. And when we come into work willing to give everything that we've got, because it's such a richly satisfying experience for us, it's it's joyful. I think you know life's greatest joys come from doing great work and tackling tough problems. Like it is such a part of our joy package. It's not the only thing that brings us joy, of course, but it's, it's a pretty critical ingredient in this, this stew. When we encounter these walls where people either won't allow it or just don't need it. Again, it's back to that busy manager who just doesn't see that Sunir could be doing so much more for you. You know, I think back on this idea of the, you, you said that many, many managers just don't see it. Through the course of my career, I had opportunities where I would inherit teams from other people or, you know, get a promotion and take that on. And, and I always had this habit of sitting down with the previous manager or the departing manager for whatever reason they were leaving or why I was taking it over. And I just say, just tell me about your team. And I can't tell you the number of times it's like, oh, well, you know, this guy, he's pretty much done. These two, you know, they're just, you're just going to have to put up with what they're able to do. And then, you know, I, I loved it because it was like such fantastic opportunities to just say, hey, let's just clean this slate here. Show me what you can do. And they're like, what? You know, I, I can't wait to show you what I can do. And, you know, these people getting promotions, you know, and recognition for doing all this great stuff. And many times those previous managers come up to me and say, what did you do? Mm-hmm. And it's everything you're talking about. It's seeing their genius, seeing their talent and giving them an opportunity to trusting them to do great work and telling them that that's what you expect from them. And, you know, I'm not in that world anymore, but I'm still really close to these people because I think that, you know, you never forget that. You never forget that somebody gave you that shot, which I think is another one of the great benefits of being a leader is that you can change lives. You can have an impact on people in a, you know, profoundly positive way. Right. And you, you expose one of the real damaging notions of um, that comes from performance ratings and forced rankings and sort of narrow job descriptions. Like there's a lot of value in those systems, but they can cause us to categorize people and to stop seeing. And they sometimes can lead us to these conclusions that maybe somebody's not a top performer or maybe somebody's not smart or not very capable. And I have to admit, I have had, I can count them on my hand a number of times where I've come to a conclusion like this dog don't hunt, you know, this, this person's not smart. Or maybe the preliminary question to that is like, is this person even smart? Someone who read an early version of the book before we published it, they took a multiplier challenge. And I love the way she framed this challenge. She says, I've got someone on my team who I am wondering if he's smart. And she said, I'm going to change my question based on having read the book. Her experiment was, I'm going to, instead of asking, is this guy smart? I'm going to ask, in what way is he smart? And she did it kind of every day, thinking about it a little bit for two weeks. And she said it became so clear to her what, what his genius was, like the thing that he did. And yeah, you know, genius doesn't exist at the same level everywhere. Yeah, there's some people who are really, really smart, but everyone has intelligence. And with the right kind of leadership, it can be seen and used and grown and 
you know, when that happens, it's sort of magic for everyone. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, if I can sort of deconstruct her process by asking a different question, she was open to a different answer. And I think sometimes we look for the genius that we see in ourselves and others, you know, sort of like, are they smart? Because I'm smart. You know, so I'm looking for that same degree of smartness, you know, that sort of undermines the whole process of identifying individual genius, isn't it? Well, it is. And Mark, you know, I got a visual image as you were talking. And that was, you know, that this old saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Okay. (laughs) So we're going to twist that just a little bit. Like, you know, if all you have is one definition of intelligence, that becomes your ruler that you measure everything by. And you take this ruler and you put it up against things and people don't measure up because you're only measuring on your ruler. And you're not seeing intelligence in technicolor. It's a clever use of language. They don't measure up. (laughs) It's really great. I mean, you stop looking. It's like, well, they don't measure up. And so I'm not going to do much for this person. And you just sort of give up on these people. And it's it's kind of a, a sad conclusion, the way you just described that. Well, and think about what it does to innovation when you build a team where everyone has the same kind of intelligence. It's all measured with the same ruler versus when you get a team of diverse intelligence. And I have to admit, I'd much rather work with a team of people who were exactly like me. (laughs) I'll admit that. People like people like themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I want people who think like me, who have the same kind of intelligence. It makes work so much easier. But I'm also smart enough to know that, you know, you end up with bigger blind spots doing that. It's easier, but it's also easier to end up producing low quality work or producing things that aren't relevant. And so Groupthink. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Like it's harder to work with people with diverse forms of intelligence and talent, but it's so much richer. And I'll tell you another thing I've learned. This is one I've learned only the hard way is I have learned because I've managed for a lot of years now and I've uh, raising four children and I've been married for 31 years. Wow. I've learned Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Here's what I've learned. It's a lot easier to use what people are already good at than to try to get someone to be good at things they're not. Like, you know, I've been trying to get my husband to be good at things he's not for so many mm-hmm. years. Um, my wife's trying the same same scheme. It, it doesn't work. I mean, it finally <laughs> took me a while to say, wow, like, look at him and say, what is he brilliant at? And how, as a family, do we make, do we maximize that? And And for people who I work with, like, wow, they're not good at this thing. I wish they were good at, but man, they're really good at that. How can we use it? If people take anything from this podcast, that is such great wisdom. We so often try to make people recreate them in our own image or what we think they're supposed to be in in some other way, shape or form. And if you can just accept where people are and maximize their talents, you're going to get so much more out of them because you're honoring who that person is. You're honoring their fundamental spirit, I think. Right. And what does it feel like when people, like, what's it like to go to work or be in a family or a community unit where your unique intelligence or gift is seen and used and appreciated? That's a pretty good gig. And it's the kind of place where people feel a lot of joy. And I don't even have to say people feel loved and they love working in this, but it's funny, like that feeling of joy and love and appreciation, it comes 
when people's intelligence gets used. Like the way I like to look at it is the way that people's hearts is through their minds. Because this is the Lead from the Heart podcast, I will say that what you just said is absolute truth. That we know that the heart and the mind are connected and they're constantly communicating with one another. So they're operating together, if you will. There's this collaboration that's going on. And so at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about the failings of somebody who leads with all heart and wants to step in and sort of be the mom, if you will. But it works the same way on the mind side. If you're all in your head, then you're going to come to a lot of really bad conclusions about how to manage human beings. So, mm. and I think this word love keeps coming up in these discussions, which is interesting because whether people articulate it or not, that's what they're feeling. It's like somebody sees mm -hmm. in me what I see in me and they're letting me be who I am. And that makes me feel fantastic. And that fantastic sort of has the synonym called love, you know? Yeah. So one of the questions that I asked at the very beginning in introducing you was, would people, if you think about you being my audience, being uh, a leader and a manager, would people describe you this way? So in your book, you describe this idea that there's this continuum. And on one end of the spectrum, there are these multipliers. And so we'll, we'll put the greatest multiplier possible on one end. And on the other side is the greatest diminishers ever. So where do most people stack up? So people are trying to assess themselves and listening to you. Do you have any feedback in terms of where they likely might be? I mean, obviously it's individual, but you know, where, where we are as a, a society in terms of how we manage? Well, I think it's a pretty fair to assume that everyone listening has some accidental diminisher tendencies. You know, there may be an abject diminisher out there and there might be someone who is like <laughs> nothing but multiplier, like nothing but net. They're just like doing it all right. People are giving them everything that most of us really fall into this accidental diminisher category. Um, you know, I did some analysis recently. We started in 2011 and then again in 2016, I measured it five years later. And we looked at people's reporting of how much of their capability was being used. The average across industries and managers was 72%. So what that's telling us is that there's a quarter there of capability that's generally being unused across the board. Mm -hmm. Like to me, there's something there for the taking. Like if I'm an average manager, rather than think about, well, gee, how would I measure up on that? I might just say, you know what? I'm just going to assume I'm average, typical, and that there is, you know, 28% of capability unused on my team. What would I need to do to go get it? And I would assume that most of my diminishing is probably accidental with the best of intents. And a lot of people read the book, Multipliers, and there's a fair number of people who read it and say, Liz, that was a painful book. And so it was the first book I wrote. And when people would say that was a painful mm -hmm. book, I'd be like, okay, I'm sort of a neurotic first time author. Could you tell me, I just need to know what do you mean by it was a painful book? Like it was hard to read, like it was torture to get through the pages. They're like, no, like it's kind of a pleasure to read that way. They're like, but it was painful because I was constantly reflecting on how maybe with the best of intentions, I'm shutting down people around me. And then I go, okay, I'm sorry, that was painful for you. But I'm going to declare some success for both of us on that. Because that's where we really start to see these reservoirs when we look 
at how we can be blinded by the best of intentions. I think you're just using this wonderful example of how we need to dig into people's language because our initial thought is, you're saying my book is painful? So that triggers all sorts of, well, I didn't do well with my book. But what she's really saying is something much more powerful, which is, it's painful for me to read that I'm probably not as good of a manager and a leader, i.e. I'm not as much of a multiplier as I might like to think I am or might want to be and aspire to. That's really what she took from your book, and that's wonderful. Yes. And that's the goal. And I think it's funny. I've learned to sort of flip people's responses to this. A lot of times I get people who say, oh, I read the book. I loved it. I loved it because I'm such a, and you can imagine what comes next. Yeah. (laughs) I'm such a multiplier. And I find that people who come to that conclusion often aren't. Like sometimes I hear people say that in groups and like offsites and team meetings and the people who report to them are looking at me like, please, no, like, He's not, you know, she's got this wrong. And it's often the people who've had a a little bit of a painful experience who are those who really do have the anatomy, the heart and the soul of these multiplier leaders. Other than 360, is there some quick and easy way for, so for, for me, for example, let's say I'm managing a team of 15 people. And I'm listening to this. And by the way, the goal of this is to do exactly what you just described. I want people listening to this to be going, am I like this? How much of a multiplier am I? And where do I fit on that spectrum? And so you've given a sense that we're all probably a little bit weaker than we might want to be. How do I pin it down with my 15 people? What's the best way for me to go about really discovering whether I'm Mm. helping people the way I want to be? Yeah. Well, there's definitely the 360 approach. We have one. I had spent a lot of time putting together what I thought was a rigorous, psychometrically sound assessment. I was very proud of it, actually. And then my publisher, she said, you know what, why don't you give me a quiz, like a Cosmo quiz? And I'm like, oh, I don't like anything about that. Like, no, you know, and I actually rejected the idea. I decided to get over myself and create this 10 question quiz, which I thought, oh, this is lightweight. This little three minute quiz has been so helpful to so many people. I was so wrong about this. You you could take it. We call it, are you an accidental diminisher? And it will take you through 10 questions. Each of them are ways that we tend to diminish with the best of intentions. You know, are you a little bit of a pace setter? You know, are you a rapid responder? Is, is your optimism actually shutting down your team? I don't want to say too much. Mm-hmm. I don't want to like taint the, the quiz results, but it's a three minute quiz. You can find it on the book's website. That has been really, really helpful to lots of folks. I think the best way is to ask. Now, of course, if you ask, am I a diminisher? Oh, no, of course not. You know, Liz, not you. Or if you even ask, am I an accidental diminisher? You're likely going to hear no, 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 no. So you've got to ask in what way, with the best of intentions, how might I be shutting down ideas, capability, or, you know, how might I be a wet blanket on innovation with the best of intentions? And if you ask it that way, people will, will usually tell you. And if they don't, you probably have to go back to this trust issue. You may not have even the fundamental levels of trust for people to tell you. Another way I find, there's a little chart in the book. I just looked it up. I think it's on page 208, 209. It's my favorite chart in the book. And 
it lists out uh, all these accidental diminisher tendencies, some, you know, that I mentioned, a uh, protector, rescuer, rapid responder, optimist, pace setter. And you can show a chart like that to the people on your team saying, I think I might be a bit of a pace setter. What do you think? What do you see? And we have found that putting a piece of paper in front of someone and handing them a pencil or a pen and just inviting them to circle, there's little icons on the, the chart, to circle that is actually one of the easiest and most effective ways for people to tell you. It's creating a really safe way for people to give you feedback. And it's actually the one I recommend the most. Well, I mean, I like the idea of a simple quiz. The cosmopolitan, that'll throw you for a cosmo quiz. But the idea of giving people quick information like that where they can sort of validate it. But I, I think you're right. And I think you also use the word trust. If you're going through this exercise and people aren't willing to give you the critical feedback. That's your feedback, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So thank you for that. And I guess one question I had in just listening to you has to do with again, the psychology of a diminisher. To some people that are diminishers, do they feel threatened by seeing other people become more, like there's this fear that they are gonna end up getting more recognition or they might even end up taking my job or, you know, is there much of that in the diminishing role or is that just the definition of a weak manager? You know, I think those people are out there and they are real. So if you work with people like that, I do not wanna deny that dynamic or their existence, I would not say there's much of it out there. That's not where I see it coming from. What I hear, because people tell me, like they'll come up and they'll, after I speak or they read the book, they'll come up and say, you know what, Liz, I really want to be one of these multiplier leaders. I get it. I see this is where the world is going. I want to do this, but I'm really worried that if I take the role of like issuing the challenge rather than giving the answer, asking the question rather than being directive, you know, seeing people's genius rather than being the only genius, if I do that, like where's my value? So I don't see people wanting to hold other people back as much as they want to go with them. They want to be successful too. And I think this is where there could be a, a misconception around this idea of multiple, like, to create an environment where other people can play big. Exactly. You don't have to play small. It's about playing differently. It's about playing differently. I heard this story about this experience Magic Johnson had. It created this real imprint on me. And he described, you know, of course, Magic Johnson, this amazing basketball player, Olympic athlete, you know, business owner, franchise owner, you know, uh, currently president of uh, basketball operations at the Lakers. When he was a young man, his coach, his high school coach, gave him some guidance. And his coach said to him, Irvin, because of course he's not Magic, then he's Irvin Johnson Jr. And he's total phenom. Like he's absolutely amazing on the court. And his coach said to him, Irvin, every time you get the ball, I want you to take the shot. Now, you would think his coach would have said pass, but... No, his coach said, every time you get the ball, I want you to take the shot. And, And so he did. And of course, he scored a lot of points. And the coach was really happy because, you know, this kid's doing exactly what he's being coached to do. And the other players like this too, because they're undefeated. Like with Irvin on their team, they win every game, but they win with maybe 54 points and Irvin would have scored 50 or 52 of those points. And this is all going along just fine, win after win after win, until there's just one particular game, you know, they win, the game's over, celebration's done kids are leaving the gym with their parents. And this young man, Irvin, 
sees the faces of the parents who, you know, of course they came to see their kids play, but you know, what did they get to see? And it really, it affected him. And he said, I made a decision that I would use my God-given talent to help everyone on the team be a better player. And it was actually this orientation that earned him this nickname of magic. It was given to him by this Michigan sports writer who said he just raises the level of play of every team he plays on. And for me, this becomes like the visual image, the metaphor for this kind of leadership. Like, it's not like Magic Johnson played small. It's not like he cheered his team on from the sidelines. It's not like he always passed. Like, he played huge, huge but he played in a way that invited other people to play at their best. It like dared them. It conjured it up. Like he created room for other people to be big as well. I will tell you, I met Magic Johnson a few years ago and it was on a vacation in Hawaii and he and his family happened to be at the beach. And there was a specific reason that my wife and I were interested in just saying hello to him that I won't go into. But what I will tell you is, is that everything that you described about that elevation came through in a conversation. I mean, there's a million people that would love to have a conversation with that guy. So he easily could have just shut it down and said, hey, I'm on vacation or I'm at the beach with my family. And instead, that's a special person that can do what you just described, but also to have the self-awareness to say, these parents, they're not getting anything out of this because I'm the only one who's really playing here. And that's not the way this is supposed to go. That's, you know, that's pretty spectacular human being. Yeah. And it's about using your intelligence differently. It's about using your know-how to ask the brilliant question rather than offer the right answer. It's, it's using your intelligence to know what's the right challenge I should be feeding to my team right now. And And I know there's probably some people listening who goes, you know what, if I do those things, I ask questions rather than give answers. I like my company won't value that. And that might be the case. And I think the only thing I can offer there is if you have any choice in the matter, go work for a different company that understands what leadership is about. Now, some people don't have that choice. And then you've got to just be that multiplier in your team and make sure that you're adding enough value that people see that as well. I also think, though, that um, having worked in environments, it may not even be the culture of the company. It might just be the person you happen to be working for. You got the hot potato and that person sort of squelches that kind of behavior. But I think even though your own boss doesn't live that way or lead that way, you can still do that with your team, can't you? In other words, you know, your own little maximize the talent of the people that you have, even if that's not what's being done to you. Mark, I think you're absolutely nail on the head right about this. I think there's this assumption, this very quiet assumption that people have in the corporate world that we can't outlead our bosses. If our bosses aren't leading this way, we can't. And I have just seen too many cases, so many of the multipliers I've studied, I've written about, they're doing this in almost like an abject diminisher environment. Yeah. But their team is performing at such high levels, it's almost like their countercultural behavior gets ignored. Kind of like we all know this truth is that people who perform at high levels who violate corporate norms, like, you know, norms around sort of team play and this, like, that gets excused when they're really, really top performers. But it's the same truth with leadership. 
let the performance of your team speak for itself. And don't be afraid to be a better boss than your boss. Totally agree. You know, and maybe even help bring your boss along with you. Well, I think you can because they see it. They see what you're doing and they see the impact and they see the response that they're getting. And they they would have to be blind to the fact that the response that you're getting by managing your team that way is different than what they're getting from the way that they're managing that person and everybody else. So ideally, you can have that shift, but I think it's worth the effort for that reason, but also because it's just a much more satisfying way to manage, isn't it? I mean, really, at the end of the day, when you see people growing and you see people contributing and you see all boats rising, if you will, there's something really satisfying about that if you have your heart in the right place as a manager. Absolutely. And there are some senior leaders who will be threatened by it. But I would suggest that if you're leading like a multiplier to your team, sort of down and out in a typical hierarchical frame of an organization, I would say don't overlook the opportunity to be a multiplier up so that your boss's genius gets used and seen and that you listen and learn to your boss to the same extent you listen and learn to your team. It's a strategy, not just for making sure like you get the air cover you need, but it's actually probably the best strategy for dealing with the diminishers around you is, is multiply Multiply your way up. I'm smiling because I wish I had known that (laughs) there were times where, as I hear you say that, that I realized how brilliant that would be because that's what they need too, right? Yeah, we forget that bosses are people too. We often see them as like these roles and we limit them and almost dehumanize them in some ways. But, you know, if you treat your boss the same way you would treat your favorite employee, or one of your children in the most like kind and hopeful and encouraging way, you're not necessarily going to change that person, but I guarantee you the dynamic will change. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I did a second edition of the book is to put in a chapter on how to deal with diminishers. There you go. There's a headline. You can skip the chapter. That's fantastic. All right. I want to transition here. We have something we call our heartbeat round, Liz. And so what I want to do is I'm going to ask you just probably about a dozen quick questions. And your job is to effectively answer each of them at a heartbeat. And these kind of help us get a better sense of you, even though you've done a magnificent job of revealing yourself. These are really, really cool. And I think people really enjoy them. So here we go. You ready? Okay. Okay. This is not my strength. I'm going to do my best. The quality you admire most in other people? Humility or maybe gratitude. Those are both great. Number of weeks vacation you give yourself most years? <laughs> oh, I would give myself maybe two, but my husband decides on how much vacation and where we go. And his number's way closer to six. I might even say seven. Like He vacations like a European. I think that's fantastic. The one perk you think every company should offer? Oh, well, I guess it would be fairly hypocritical of me to not say like unlimited vacation. Now, wouldn't it? Do you think that's a great perk? You know, I I do. I think it, it says we trust you to use your judgment. But I also am a big believer in, I guess we would call it flex time, just the ability for people to work where and when they do their very best work, like where at all possible. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Mm, writing, like learning to write case studies. I'm kind of terrible at it. And I've been flailing around at this for the last month. CEO in any industry you hold in the highest regard? Mm. Boy, there's just one I met last week, Jim Powers at Crow Horwitz Accounting Firm. Just phenomenal human, amazing multiplier. 
I also really, really admire Dow Wilson, CEO of Varian, a med tech device company. Awesome. One book that absolutely changed your life. Mm. Uh, the Banality of Evil by Hannah Arndt. It was about the Holocaust and really about how easy it is to lose our moral clarity because we're simply following and doing what the leaders around us tell us and expect us to do. It, it really changed the way I saw the world. Skill most managers are worse at than they think they are. Mm, I'd probably say self-awareness. We've talked about mm -hmm. that, but you know, seeing the shadow they cast, seeing sort of the damage the churn in the wake. I think people aren't as good at this as they think they are. I'm not as good as I think I am. Favorite band or singer? Oh, I, I have to say Bono. He might not be my favorite singer, but man, is he my favorite philosopher. <laughs> I just love the way he thinks. Mindfulness or meditation practice? Yes or no? Oh, definitely no. Definitely no. You know, I'm one of these people like I'll meditate when I'm dead, kind of. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'd rather be active and doing things, but I do have a personal practice of prayer. I guess it's a form of meditation. I think so. Undergraduate degree you'd pursue if you were heading to college today. Mm, it's kind of the one I dangle in front of my children. Like, oh, if you can't figure out what you can do, like I'd probably go back to school and study neuroscience. I think there's so much interesting things coming out of neuroscience right now. The behavior or trait that derails most leadership careers? Hubris. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Oh, um, yeah, I was, it's kind of tempting to say kindness right now or civility, but I think what we really need more of is restraint. Like just saying less, like do more, say less. Like you don't have to say everything, every thought that goes through your head, including the bad ones <laughs> newspaper or magazine you never miss reading mm, new york times every day and your favorite guilty pleasure oh really it's just between oh. us well yeah um uh probably baths and massages like i really should have been a member of like the ottoman aristocracy i mean and like spent my time in turkish bathhouses <laughs> that's the <laughs> Those are wonderful answers. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, so we, we've we covered just a ton of ground, and uh, I, but I always like to give my guests the opportunity to close out the podcast with any final thoughts. So we spent a lot of time discussing why leaders are wise to become multipliers. Any last piece of advice or guidance that you'd like to leave our audience pondering after we sign off? Yes. In my research and my study, and you know, I kind of make the argument that these these multiplier leaders uh, get more from other people, and they give people a chance to give more of their capability. And it's in some ways, it's a economic argument. It's a competitive argument about being innovative or agile. And but I think it really comes down to a decision around legacy. Like, who do you want to be? as a leader, as a, as a parent, as a friend, as a person, like, do you want to be the genius that has all the answers that everyone says, oh, wow, like you're amazing. Or do you want to be remembered as, as more of the genius maker? You know, the person around whom other people were amazing, you know, like, who do you really want to be? 
I think it's fantastic. Aspiration. Sometimes we forget what our aspirations are and every once in a while. I think that's one of the values of this podcast or any podcast for that matter is just you get out of your head and you're listening to other people have a conversation about something that's important to you and you start to reflect on who you are and what you are and whether or not your behavior is aligned to your values and what you dream you of, you know, what you want yourself to be. So I think that's an absolutely fantastic way of concluding this. And I just thank you so very much. You're wonderful. Your book is wonderful. And on behalf of everyone listening in, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been just an absolute delight. It's absolutely my pleasure. And it was really fun talking to you, except the part where I confessed, like, my guilty pleasures. <laughs> Everyone's going to see me as like a lazy lump. <laughs> like I said, our little secret. All right. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. Bye-bye. Before we leave, I'd like to once again thank all of you for supporting our new podcast. This is just our 10th episode, and we've already attracted listeners in 68 different countries around the world, a fact that just really astounds me. And a few days don't go by that I don't feel gratitude for all the people who created the incredible technologies that connect us all. And to my way of thinking, it's truly remarkable that the ideas that my guests all share can have impact on the thinking of leaders across the globe. And that's really what's happening. So once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends and colleagues about us. And thank you for all the encouragement many of you extended me personally. And as always, I want to thank my great sound engineer, Eric Oz, and my site manager, Randy Yant. And I also want to leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Thank you.